Hey, y'all. This episode was recorded live in Chicago at a show we put on in partnership with NPR member station WBEZ. We already posted an excerpt of the show in the feed behind this one where we covered some political news from late last week. This episode is everything else. Enjoy. I'll sing it. Please clap. Hey y'all, please clap. It's the NPR Politics Podcast live from Chicago. So you guys might hear in the background, uh, I made a trap remix of our theme song. Um, I think Kanye West, native of Chicago, would be very proud of it. I'm proud of it. Anyways, there's that. So we are here tonight at the Riva and David Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago in partnership with the one and only WBEZ. Thanks, you guys, for having us here. episode will be just a little different than our regular weekly roundup. We're going to discuss some bigger themes and stories from 2016. But we'll also take questions from the audience. You guys here. Um, and we'll share what we just can't let go from 2016. With that, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. And I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Um, true story, we are the four people that sung that version of the song. As you guys know, we sing a lot in the podcast. Mm-hmm. We have a burgeoning R&B supergroup called Vocalness hitting your <laughs> airwaves soon. This um, Vocalness right here. We all are not afraid to sing. So Ron, the favorite son is returning here to the Midwest. Yes, I am from Chicago. I grew up here. Big shout out, big shout out to Lyman A. Budlong Grammar School, if anyone here <laughs> got a few of those. And I've always said that when I die, I hope to be returned here to Chicago and be buried so that I can always remain active in politics. Well done. Danielle, you're a Midwesterner, too. Yeah, I, I'm, fa- I'm a favorite daughter, actually. They gave me a plaque. I get to cut in line at the State Fair. It's really great. <laughs> the Iowa I'm, State Fair. The Iowa State Fair. Yeah, I'm from the burgeoning metropolis of Titonka, Iowa, um, <laughs> which is my Twitter handle, Titonka. People always ask me why that is, and that's it. I'm one of the, like, 500. Uh, well, let's uh, move on. Let's do it. Oh, so I want to say why I'm happy to be in Chicago. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Sam. Two big reasons. My favorite sitcom of all time, Happy Endings, is set in Chicago. I love that show. And one of my favorite rappers of all time, Kanye West, is from Chicago. So this morning, I made a playlist of all Kanye's songs and ran on the water and was just feeling real good. And that's when I ran into you. Yes, we were both running. And I was running a little more slowly, I think. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Did did all four of us go running this morning? Ron? Ron, Uh, Let me me check. No. Dang. It was almost a Yahtzee. <laughs> on that note, we're going to move on to one of my favorite things to do on the podcast. A segment we call Can't Let It Go. Um, yeah, it's a good segment, huh? 
So usually this is where we all share a thing. We cannot stop. Oh, yeah. Okay, we should explain the graphics. Yeah. Um, I think that's Ron Burgundy, actually. <laughs> and we should explain to our podcast audience there is a, a board, uh, there is a, a large graphic up here with some cartoon images of us. In some other decade. I want to be my cartoon. <laughs> you look like a I feel badass. like my cartoon image does CrossFit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And my cartoon image drives a minivan. Oh, wait. <laughs> I do. <laughs> my cheekbones look great up there. Yeah, they really yeah. do. Anyway. On that note, <laughs> um, usually our cligs, as we call them, are about a thing that we cannot let go from the entire week. But because this audience is so special, this show is so special, our cligs <laughs> are going to be about the thing that we cannot let go from this entire election year, all of 2016. Uh, we've got some doozies. Um, so, Professor Burgundy, you will start. <laughs> well, in the sense that the Titanic and its sinking summed up the entire failure of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> oh, Ron. I love how Ron this, always goes this... back to, you know, when he was a kid. Yeah. Oh. Pow, pow, pow. Shots fired. Right. Shots fired. That was good. Sorry, that was, Ron. That was, that was, that was good. Um, <laughs> In that, in that same sense, in that same sense, this video, I think, captures the essential overbearing metaphor for the last 12 months of our national politics. Can we run the, can we run the run video? Run the tape. For people who are just joining, this is 56th Street and 5th Avenue in New York City. It's Trump Tower where some guy, we don't know who, is climbing the side of uh, Trump Tower. Here, here we have a 20-year-old climbing to the top of the Trump Tower in hopes of meeting Donald Trump. Now, one way to see the metaphor would be that this young man represents the American news media. <laughs> and that we have spent the last year essentially doing the same thing. Uh, and certainly, we held an obsessive interest in the candidate, but so did our audience. And our audience has certainly uh, rewarded many, many different media outlets for the attention they have paid to Donald Trump. I like to think of the people who came in there at the end and hauled the young man off of the side of the building with his suction devices and so on as the, in, you know, the, the intrusion of reality and realism at some point <laughs> in the I'm entire process. I'm just waiting for some police officers to come grab us and help us out of 2016. Also, the guy was that. cupping, which is all the rage. Oh yes, my God. Big Swimmer showed us. <laughs> It's a thing. Ooh. None of these jokes were there so in rehearsal. <laughs> Tamara, you're next. Yours involves a moment on video that is a little bit older, from 1992 to be exact. Yes. So um, Hillary Clinton uh, was running for first lady. No, wait. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess. <laughs> she kind of was. And, and Bill Clinton was running for president. And there was some controversy because there was a question as to whether... Bill Clinton had been funneling state business into her very high-powered law firm where she was working. And she was doing some sort of campaign event, and the press started peppering her with questions about it, and this was her answer. You know, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but I, what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. Boom. Yes. <laughs> that blew up into a firestorm. Yeah. Because the sense was that here's Hillary Clinton criticizing, belittling stay-at-home moms and women who have time to bake cookies. And it turned into a very big thing. Mm -hmm. Then Family Circle magazine 
known for its cookie recipes, <laughs> decided to uh, have a little fun. And they said, let's create a cookie bake-off for the spouses it. of the presidential candidates. And so they did. And now it is 2016, and we have the first female nominee of a major US political party. And guess what hasn't died? <laughs> so, um, wait, do they do this every four years? Like yes, it's a quadrennial thing. Oh, really? Yes. Quadrennial. You threw that out real good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the seventh quadrennial oh. cookie bake off. <laughs> they changed the name to the cookie pole this year. Mm. Um, so, whose are those cookies? These, well, so they asked the Clinton campaign for Bill's favorite cookie recipe. And Bill did not submit a recipe. Um, the campaign submitted the Clinton family cookie recipe, mm. which happens to be an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie with Crisco as the base, not butter. And um, it is also the identical recipe to the 1992 recipe, which was a winning <sighs> recipe. So guys, plagiarized cookies, out. man. I've been baking. <laughs> Full disclosure, I've had like five of these over the past week. They've been so yeah. good. <laughs> We've tested them. And so um, we have both the Hillary Clinton, uh, or sorry, the Clinton family recipe, um, and we also have the Melania Trump recipe. Wait, so back, go back, go back. here it is. You'll note that these are star-shaped cookies. <laughs> I won't tell you where I've seen these before. <laughs> At the office a couple days ago. Um, so the Melania Trump recipe is it's sort of a, it's a biscuity, kind of a, a very it's plain... It's a flat biscuit. Yeah. You start with about six tablespoons of butter. You cream that with um, a cup of powdered sugar. Um, but it turns out powdered sugar in a cookie just isn't very sweet, and so these cookies are not particularly sweet. Um, the Family Circle magazine uh, person who I interviewed, the food director, um, says that she thinks it is a traditional Eastern European cookie recipe. And, and in Europe... Um, People don't like it as sweet as we like it here. Really? All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just eat the I, sweet cookie but over here. I think aside from the recipes, there is a larger conversation to have here about... about. America's obesity problem? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and about women. Gender. Oh, and why, oh, oh. Like, well, also, like, the whole gender thing is just baffling that we're still doing this today. Right. But why do we keep asking people running for president to do all the other weird stuff? Bake cookies, dance on Ellen, shoot something, throw an axe. Can't they just, like, tell us what they do as president? Crisco really does make the best cookies. I mean, that's just true. So, it is fact, yeah. fact check true. Okay. Uh, Danielle, what can you not let go from 2016? All right. Um, so I do not have cookies. I do not have a video of a suction cup guy. I have academic research. <laughs> so. Yeah! This is why we love this you. This guy's exciting. <laughs> All right, so buckle up. All right. Uh, <laughs> no, there was a study that I ran across earlier in the campaign that I just can't stop thinking about. And it's a study that shows it's a natural experiment sort of presented itself in broadband internet and how it spread across the U.S. So a few political scientists, researchers, they tried to look at broadband penetration into different counties in the US and how that squares with affective polarization. Now that means how much people on the right hate people on the left, how much people on the left hate people on the right. It's not about ideology, it's about 
how angry you are at the other side, essentially. And what they found is that broadband internet penetration was associated with higher affective polarization, with more angry feelings about politics. What they said is they think the causal mechanism is visiting more partisan websites because people who got broadband internet did visit more partisan websites. So the idea is it's not that Fox News or MSNBC going in the background during your day is like necessarily changing you so much, but once you get the internet, you sit down at your computer and you like find the niche of the internet, you like burrow into the corner that you are already sort of predisposed towards and you get sucked even further into it. So this fascinates me and it worries me. That never was, tweet. I'm, I'm scared, is what I'm saying. Never ever tweet. Never well, yeah, internet, I mean, never tweet, never is, nothing. It's proof that the internet makes people mean in a certain sense, and it's, which is kind of scary. It's a perversion of what was so great about the internet at first. Like if you were a big fan of Buffy, for example, and- <laughs> Who was Buffy it? fans? Uh, like you could find your community online and be and it would make you more of a super fan arguably that's great but this seems to make you more of a super fan in a different way everyone go home and throw your computers away yeah <laughs> do it tonight <laughs> all right sam uh what can you not let go of this year other than beyonce i'm gonna let it go um this is not at all based in fact or in study it's kind of a polar opposite of your clique. Great. But I think they complement each other. Mm -hmm. uh, mine's all about emotion. Um, and I'm going to give you guys my uh, theory of political emotion, I guess I'll call it that. When I began on this desk, um, I had this much experience covering politics. So I just didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> and I was particularly scared about doing the job right. Um, the night before we taped the first podcast, I never told you guys this, I was trying to prep. So I was like, I'm going to read three articles about every topic we're going to discuss. I get through five articles and I'm just like overwhelmed. So I'm in the office just crying, like bawling, Aww. like how the hell do I do this? And so over time, I figured out that I will never know enough about politics. I will never have that kind of factual wisdom. I'll acquire more as I do this more, but I'm not going to be that guy. What I can do is every story that I do, I go in there and I say, how does this feel? To me, to these people, to Ted Cruz, to Bernie Sanders, how does it feel? And what I realized once I did that is that like, there is this base of like six or seven or eight emotions that are applicable to all political stories. Anger, confusion, hope, uh, despair, uh, like the same things that are present in everyday life, right? And as soon as you see every story as containing a certain set or a certain part of a universal set of emotions, you can see everyone else's reality a little bit better. So I might not agree with the folks that I talk to. I might not see eye to eye with them, but I can say to myself, there's been some point in my life where I have felt as angry as they have, where I have felt as confused as they have, where I have felt as alone or afraid as they have. And because my emotions matter and because my story's worth telling, there's this too. And it doesn't just make everything easier, it makes everything connected. And that happens all the time every day. And I can't let it go. That's it. Okay, I think it's time for some Q&A. And this is always fun. We had you guys write down your questions and Please be patient as we deliver the microphones. Um, yes. Sam, who's first? 
We have nine questions. The first comes from Dan Smith from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Where is Dan Smith? Where are you? Over here. Hey, Dan. Woo! We met earlier. Dan is wearing the coolest shirt. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Man. It's got these like kittens riding these T Rexes. Yeah. Snaps for your shirt, Dan. I really like it. Thanks. Okay, go ahead. Um, as someone who is quote dragged here by his wife and has never listened to the podcast. <gasps> Get out. <laughs> okay, to be fair, I listened to it once today okay. on our way here. That'll Good work. preparation. Um, <laughs> could you introduce yourself and describe your job or position in the most impressive way possible? Flashy is best. I'm not going first. <laughs> Ron's eating a <your> cookie. <laughs> <laughs> so I, hope that's, I hope that's impressive enough for you. <laughs> Uh, when when not eating cookies, I uh, I have been on the desk since the uh, late 1990s. I have been an editor, and I have been a correspondent. Now the senior editor and correspondent on my desk. I like to say that over the years, my responsibilities included covering the three branches of the federal government: the executive branch, the legislative branch, and Nina Totenberg. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle. Um, I am the keeper of the numbers. I am yes. the grandmaster of academic studies. I am the destroyer of worlds. I, uh, no, I mean, to, to be, to, not to be silly. Um, I honestly, one, I, first of all, I do a lot of my writing for the web, and I tend to report the living bejesus out of something and use, you know, 1% of the stuff that I end up getting from the people I talk to, but I end up having a very deep knowledge of things. Aside from that, I am the maker of charts for people on the desk, and I, f I feel like fairly often people come up to me and say, hey, I need this stat, where's the best way to find it? And usually I know, that's what I do. So when I am not uh, hanging out on the campaign trail, getting motion sick on the back of buses, <laughs> being live on All Things Considered from buses <laughs> or tarmacs, uh, I sometimes get to sit in the second row of the White House press briefing room and ask questions and look awake, because in the second row you're always on television. And sometimes, just sometimes, I get to ride on Air Force One, yeah. which lots of things are very overrated about being a White House correspondent. Air Force One not being one of them. <laughs> this next question comes from Amanda, who is from Aurora. Your question says, how do you see the third party candidates affecting the election turnout and results? Ron. <laughs> the two main alternatives to, uh, or options for people other than the Republican and Democratic nominee are the libertarian, Gary Johnson, who has chosen a very well-known in some parts of the country vice presidential nominee in William Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts, uh, well-known as a moderate to liberal Republican. Uh, on the Green Party side, you have Jill Stein, who ran uh, four years ago, as did Gary Johnson. If you crank those two people into the polls, they tend to narrow the gap between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, make it a little closer, uh, taking maybe about 10 points or so for Gary Johnson and four or five points for Jill Stein. Now, that does not put them in the running to win, 
but it does put them in, one, in the running to influence the final result. Uh, many of us remember that in 2000, Ralph Nader did not get a large percentage of the vote nationwide, but got enough vote in Florida to very likely uh, put a thumb on the scale in that state going against uh, the Democratic Party, against Al Gore, very narrowly, fewer than 1,000 votes, uh, and that even in a controversial recount that gave George W. the presidency. So third-party candidates can have a tremendous amount of impact. I'll just say quickly, uh, they need 15% to get into the debates. That's one way in which people can certainly make the case mm -hmm. that the system is rigged. Why 15%? Who gets to set it? Well, it's the commission. Who's the commission? It's an agreement between the Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> so in that sense, yes. I mean, it is a it, highly arbitrary decision who gets to be in the debates. And in the past, what we've seen is if the third party candidates are not in the debates, which they usually have not been, then they disappear after the debates and don't have a big effect in November. We should just mention there's also that Evan guy. Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen. Evan, McMullen. Evan McMullen from Utah. He's running too. He yeah. might do some things in Utah because he's Mormon and could get a big swath of that vote. He's yep. mentioned. Um, next question comes from John Farrick from Oak Park. Where are you at? In the middle Hi. upper row there. Okay. Uh, where does the Republican Party go after Trump? Well, it depends on whether Mr. Trump wins or loses. Right. And I think we should not, you know, over... Like, after Trump might be longer than people think whether he wins or loses. Because of the TV network. <laughs> there, well, there are rumors that he you know, will contest the results, that he might start his own TV network. I mean, I don't see someone like Donald Trump fading gracefully into the background, whatever happens, the, for one. The, the question to me, though, is, and I think it's not entirely clear yet, let's assume Donald Trump loses. Has he forever made the Republican Party the party of Trump? Or does the Republican Party, does Paul Ryan wake up on November 9th, whatever it is, and say, well, my nightmare is over and let's go back to those tax plans. <laughs> but if Donald Trump could so quickly change the GOP, couldn't someone else so quickly change it back? I think we saw Barack Obama fundamentally change what the Democratic Party is when he came out of nowhere. Like, there are frequently stories of politicians come out of nowhere to, like, Charge in, right? I mean, on the one hand, I don't know if Donald Trump really changed the GOP that quickly. I mean, you had a rift growing yeah, over the years. Yeah. I mean, you could in, in that way kind of see him as a sign, not necessarily like the catalyst for it. You could, you could say he's both. And, and really, I mean, the, the answer, I think the only real answer to that question is win or lose. We just don't know because the struggle is going to go on. The struggle within the Republican Party for what kind of party it's going to be is not going to end anytime soon, whether Trump wins or loses. Could we get another party? Like, could we get a fourth party, third party, whatever you call it? I think if we get a third, we'll get a fourth. That it would tend to, to break the spell of the two-party system. Uh, but really, the, the most likely thing is that the more conservative people that did respond to Trump will be unable to swallow the people who are backing Trump, and that in the absence of Trump, I expect those two halves of the Republican Party, and I don't know if they're exactly halves, but something like halves, uh, will stay at war continually through the 2018 midterms and into the 2020 struggle, which has already begun. Many of the candidates from the last cycle are already running for 2020. Yeah. Kelly Cronin from Milwaukee. Where are you? Hi. Up front. Right Hi. there. Uh, so one of the criticisms of Hillary and Trump is that they haven't been doing many press conferences. And so my question is, what are journalists and voters looking for in a press conference setting that they aren't 
getting from these one-on-one -on -one interviews um, and other sorts of media events. Tam? I think that's me. Yeah. Mrs. Press Conference. Um, so I think Donald Trump has actually done a few more press conferences than Hillary Clinton. It's been something like 250, 260 days since Hillary Clinton had a press conference. It was December of 2015, the last time she had a formal press conference. Now, what is the value of a formal press conference? She has done some press gaggles. I've been there for a few of those. You know, you're like in an ice cream shop and she turns to you and smiles instead of not smiling. And you're like, oh, it's time to ask questions. <laughs> and because <laughs> usually it's like we're not there, but if we get the smile, it means we are there and we can ask questions. <laughs> and typically that's like, there's a news thing, like the last one she had, it was the weekend that Donald Trump had ins insulted the Gold Star family, the Khan family, and mm, seven of the eight questions were, and do you think he went over the line? How far over the line do you think he went? Like, we were, we were fishing for a soundbite, basically, because we all had stories to write. So that's not that productive for us. With a press conference, if we could have a press conference with Hillary Clinton, somebody could ask her a question about, say, TPP, like, is there something that could be done to the Trans-Pacific Partnership to make it something you would support? And she would give sort of a dodgy answer the first time because, and, and I, this is not a, a specific criticism of Hillary Clinton, it's a politician's All give a dodgy right. answer the first time. And then somebody else would raise their hand and figure out where the imprecision in her language was and ask again. You could go three, four questions on the same topic, really burrow in and get somewhere. But we are in a post-policy election, and I think that her campaign has made the calculation that they can do these interviews uh, and they can take the heat yeah. on not doing a press conference and avoid having to take positions on things that could hurt her. Next question, Laura from Chicago. Up there. Hi. Okay. Uh, my question was, uh, do you think that we'll see Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel out on the campaign trail? Supporting whom? <laughs> nah. Thank you for your question. <laughs> no, I, I realize that there's a very long relationship between Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Between the Clintons and Rahm Emanuel, and obviously you would assume that he might be an asset for them under other circumstances. Not this fall, not no. this season. And I mean, Hillary Clinton is banking on having really high turnout with black and brown voters this election, and his actions in the city over lots of issues with policing have, in large respects, made those voters mad. So also, I don't, I don't note to Illinois, no. you are not a swing state. So, <laughs> all right. Jeff from Chicago. Jeff from Chicago. Where are you at? My question is, how likely do you think the Democrats will take back the Senate this year? <laughs> IDK. A murmur runs through the crowd. Okay. Real quick on the numbers. There are 34 seats on the ballot for the Senate this year. 24 of them are held by Republicans. Approximately 10 of them are in some degree of jeopardy. There are only 10 Democratic seats on the ballot. Two of them are in some degree of jeopardy. Probably only one of them is really in jeopardy. Hmm. So if you figure something along the lines of a third to a half of those Republican seats may very well go down, especially if Hillary Clinton wins, 
Well, we start right here in the state of Illinois. The likeliest one to go would be Mark Kirk. Not that he should necessarily. But he's Not probably he the most endangered Republican yeah. senator. But he's, he's number one on everybody's list. Ron Johnson up in Illinois is number two. And Wisconsin. Over, right, right. Excuse me, up in, 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 in Wisconsin. <laughs> Johnson of Wisconsin. <laughs> I, I actually, no, oh I actually I mean, know that he's from Wisconsin. I need to explain Wisconsin. that, but like in the Senate, there's like two Johnsons, and so it's Johnson of Wisconsin. Jo Wisconsin anyway. Johnson, we call. That's all cool. it means. That's all it means. And and then right over here in Indiana, since we're not traveling very far here tonight, you've got the uh, vacant seat there where uh, Evan Byers decided he does like to be in politics after all, and after being governor and senator, he'd like to come back and be senator and maybe something else someday. So he's suddenly back in the picture. So that's three right there. The current margin in the Senate is 54 to 46. So if there is a Democratic vice president, the Democrats control the Senate with just 50 votes. So if they can take away four or five and only lose zero or one, they can get to 50. And right now I would bet, if you had to bet, that the final answer will be somewhere around 50-50, pretty close to 50-50, maybe one or two off. Dan from Schaumburg. Did I say it right, Schaumburg? Front row! Hey, man. Hi. So I am curious what Hillary Clinton would do if she became president with Bernie. Would she perhaps put him in her cabinet or make an announcement in advance to win over some of the Bernie supporters that she may have isolated? I don't think that happens. Mm -mm. I don't think they like each other. No, I, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, like, I, I but to put it diplomatically, yeah. Bernie's greatest influence would be in the Senate. Yeah, and I also think that like his harshest critiques of Hillary Clinton were kind of like he disagrees with her like almost ethically and spiritually. I like, think spiritually is the yeah. Yes, it was pretty like, biting. It's deep, right? So I don't see that happening. So. The last two questions, I'm going to read myself, and we're going to do them so quick. Um, <laughs> David from Chicago, he says, I noticed some of you have cushions for your lower back. <laughs> I don't. He continues, does this mean you are weak like Hillary? Wow. I didn't write that. Uh... D does everybody here get the joke? I'm imagining. <laughs> All right, Donald yeah. Trump has made some cracks about Hillary's health and oh fitness for office yeah. recently. I'll just say I'm short. It's helping my posture, though. Yeah. Tam did it, and then I felt like, you know, she was like, it feels great. And so I did. You know, and it, it does. It feels lovely. You know what? <laughs> I, I've been very comfortable up here, yeah, so no we shame. are more comfortable than the guys on this stage. Yeah. That is all. I feel good about it. I'm pretty comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last question comes okay. to us. From Ben Starr, he says he's in, been in Chicago three years, but he's from Columbus, Ohio. Woo! All right. His question, near and dear to my heart, when is vocalness going on tour? <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who are new listeners to our podcast, um, in one of our episodes from the RNC, DNC, because you were there too. I was there, so it must have been the DNC. It was DNC. Domenico misspoke and uttered the word vocalness. And everyone was like, that's not a word. And I was like, but wait, it is. So I said, this mysterious new word is actually the name of the politics podcast, Imaginary R&B Supergroup. Um, you guys will be happy to know that we actually did all the background vocals on the new Frank Ocean album. <laughs> and our tour starts soon, so there's that. So, this is the last, this is the last part. 
Um, as we wind down the show here, we're going to end with some America beer. Um, it's becoming our tradition for live events. Backstory, uh, Budweiser. Who did not sponsor uh, they have, this don't, They don't sponsor us. Not a sponsor. I don't drink that beer on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> they have said that from now through election day, they're going to label all of their beer cans with the word America. Because what is America if not spoiled apple juice beer? Watery. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what, for the listeners, Sam is now I going into his rucksack. I am opening my bag, bringing out... Loose America beers. <laughs> we, in mere I, moments, we may have America beer all over us. And we're going to drink it. I like that it's in your backpack, like you snuck it into a baseball game or something. It's not hot sauce, but it'll, it, it, it's fine. <laughs> so, we actually can't now give you guys beer. Um, we aren't allowed to give you alcohol for free at these things. Otherwise, I would totally have like three bags full of stuff for you all. <laughs> But we've got that's life. I need to crack mine open. Hold on. Uh. Okay. Last part. Wash those cookies down. <laughs> they, they were a little dry. <laughs> so, we have less than 90 days until the election. I mean, not to sound cliche or anything, but we have a real horse race here, right? Horse race? Horse race. Sam. I think at this stage of the game, we as professionals would never want to resort to cliches. Never. Never. But I can tell you that this is an election that will be won in the trenches. <laughs> We're going to press the flesh. <laughs> I see total hand-to-hand -hand combat in the red states versus the blue states. Or battleground states. Purple states, uh, swing states. But it's all about turnout. You have got to get to the grassroots, to the people. And how will they do that? Well, <laughs> pitching wins pennants, so they will pivot and throw a Hail Mary. I hate pivot so much. Half-court shots at the buzzer, followed by some home runs. But after that, it's a race to the finish, but it's not a sprint. <laughs> it's a marathon. I... I am going to double down here and say this is going to be a real war of words, just carpet bombing the battleground states with ads. Carpet bombing involves breaking some eggs to make some omelets. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, there's always a risk that someone might get caught kicking the can down the road and have to be thrown under the bus. <laughs> and if you're going to make omelets, Ron, the knives have to come out and the gloves have to come off. <laughs> Well, I mean, that can be a real home run or it can be a real unforced error because, after all, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And I don't know about you guys, but here's where I'm coming from this election. I'm the son of a coal miner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, though. My father was a mailman. And I am the granddaughter of a man who worked in a lace mill. I'm the son of a preacher man. <laughs> That's true. It is true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but before we finish up, let's talk quickly about just how unprecedented this election is. Well, you're absolutely right. The battle is going to be in the smoke-filled rooms, but beneath the glass ceilings. At the intersection of Main Street and Wall Street. <laughs> Between fat cats and big dogs. And Sam, elections are about choices. 
It'll be a real barn burner. No, you mean barnstormer. Well, first you storm the barn, and then you burn the barn. <laughs> now, now I get it. Well, it'll be a stem winder and a game changer. More of a slugfest. Obviously with real echoes of Ronald Reagan. Uh, but what do the polls say right now? Sam, the only poll that matters is the one they take on election day. <laughs> you know, Ron, I have never heard that one before. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That's it. We have to thank everyone at WBEZ for actually having us here tonight. Love you guys. Um, Tyler Green is somewhere around here. He was the wizard that produced this whole show tonight. Thank you. Um, Also thanks to Joel Meyer and Ben Calhoun from WBEZ's programming team for helping us along the way. I'm fighting back in America beer burp right now. It's hard. Okay. Um, Our podcast is produced by Brent Bachman. I'm going to stop and have us all give him a big round of applause. Um, Our podcast is edited by, right there, Shirley Henry. Along with Mathani Maturi and Beth Donovan in their absence. Uh, We also have so much help in fact-checking from NPR's own Barbara Sprunt. The visuals you could not see if you're listening to the show, but which look awesome here in Chicago, were produced by Meg Kelly. Thanks also to everyone at the Riva and David Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago for hosting us. And most of all, to you, the audience tonight, and everyone listening back at home, thank you for downloading our little show. We will be out in the lobby afterwards, and we want to say hi and take selfies. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. And thank you, Chicago, for being with us on the NPR Politics Podcast. Woo!